Hi, this is Steve. And this is Carrie. And welcome to Navigating Life as We Know It. Today we visit with a disability activist mom who is also a friend of mine. Her name is Lara Kitts. A few months ago, I learned she was putting together a new podcast, so I called her to learn more about her plans. As we talked, I knew I had to have her as a guest on my podcast. What was it about your conversation that led you to believe you wanted Lara as a interviewee? It's the focus she has for her podcast, which is about lifestyle changes for parents raising kids with special needs. Because we're notorious for not giving ourselves the self-care that's necessary in order to be effective parents and happy people. Excellent. Sounds like a fabulous topic. Let's get into it. Hi, I'm Steve Johnson, and welcome to Navigating Life as We Know It. Today, our guest is Lara Kitts. Anybody who lives in West Michigan and is involved with disability has probably heard her name. She is a mom of Taylor, Paige, and Remy, and Taylor is her daughter with uh, significant disabilities. Her spouse is Nate. She's a disability advocate, co-founder, and former chair of the Family Hope Foundation, and she has a new venture, and that's what we're talking with her today about. She is a podcaster. Her podcast is called Changing Your Dreams, and she has a program called The Flight Club. We're going to get into that in a minute, but I just wanted to welcome you, first of all, Lara. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to talk to you today, Steve. Lara, for people who don't know who you are, there's two or three of them out there. (laughs) Tell me about your journey with disability, you know, basically Taylor's story. Yeah, yes, no problem. So Taylor actually just turned 20 last week. So How did that happen? <laughs> still in this, you know, fog of holy moly. I, I think that whoever decided that, that kids become adults at age 18 was genius because I feel like that, that gives parents a two-year buffer before, <laughs> before they feel like they're really adults. So I think from 18 to 20, they get to be adults, but they're still teenagers, so it doesn't feel as big of a deal. But yeah, now that she's 20, it's like, okay, now she's an adult adult, not just a teenager adult. So it's a little bit different span. But as you and I know, a lot of times for families who have kids with special needs, it it doesn't really change a whole lot in our lives. And that is also where I sit too. So it's kind of a, a unique situation because Taylor is more severely impaired. She doesn't get to have a lot of the milestones of independence and moving on and growing up that um, a typical peer her age would have. And I'll backtrack a little bit to um, answer your question a little bit better of how did I start in this. So as I said, Taylor's 20 and when she was born, she was actually born healthy and developing normally. And then at four months of age, she developed a rare seizure disorder that impacted her development. And so she regressed, and at four months, there's, you know, not a lot uh, to lose, but she lost everything, including just any emotion, any recognition of her parents, any anything. So that was tough. Um, that disorder is called infantile spasm. I think the name is a little de- deceiving. People always think, oh, it's just spasms, not real seizures. No, they're real seizures, and they are horrific, very impactful. Um, So that was the start of our journey um, down this road, and it developed from there. there. The the good thing about infantile spasms is that it is an infancy only, and so if you're not able to stop them, the kids do outgrow them, um, typically by age 
one or two for sure. Um, but we were able to stop tailors and they, they did come back, but we stopped them again. And, you know, there's the whole round and round with which medications are going to work and that sort of thing. And so that was kind of the start of our journey. And we just followed this, you know, she's globally developmentally delayed due to the seizures, you know, secondary to the seizures. That was kind of her diagnosis, the paragraph for a long time. And then at age seven, she was finally officially diagnosed with autism and cerebral palsy. We had been following the autism world for a number of years already by that point because we knew she fit into a lot of those boxes. But we had been told more than once that she didn't have autism, actually, specifically because she was so social. You know, that was 20 years ago, and they've come a long way with understanding autism since then and, and learning how how varied kids present. Also, still, though, to this day, girls are uh, more under-diagnosed, uh, not diagnosed when they should be because they do present a little differently than boys, so there's always that. But that's where we are now, and so she has um, ataxic cerebral palsy, she has autism, she has epilepsy, her seizures did return in puberty, which is quite common if you're prone to seizures that that hormonal disruption will you know likely cause them to come back she's nonverbal um she's not toilet trained but she can walk i'm very grateful for that she does have cerebral palsy but she has the more you the more rare kind of cerebral palsy so she can walk and her muscles aren't super tight like many kids who need a lot of surgeries we don't have to have that so i am grateful for that and the good, the good yeah. thing that I always say is, you know, she does sometimes, because she has autism, she will often try to, it's called elope, people who aren't familiar, you know, that means leaving, try to wander away. Yes. A lot of kids with autism are runners or they wander. And so she will try to leave the house. And if we forget to lock a deadbolt, she might get out. But the good thing is, is that her cerebral palsy keeps her from getting far. <laughs> so it's happened a couple of times. That she's gotten out of the house, but we're able to get her, you know, by the time she reaches the end of the driveway because she can't run. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of the story in a nutshell. Yeah, and it's interesting because my son Liam has cerebral palsy and autism and epilepsy. They all presented uh-huh. differently than the story that you have with Taylor. But it's an interesting trifecta, isn't it? It is. <laughs> we had one doctor early on when he was about seven and got the autism diagnosis. He had the temerity to say, that's a bad combination. And oh, I felt like saying, thanks. God, we wouldn't have checked those boxes had we known it was a bad combination. You know? Right. Well, <laughs> what, she, what, now you tell us. <laughs> you know, what kind of comment is that? That's not very reassuring for parents. It's a bad combination. No. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely inappropriate from your doctor. However, it is true. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a really tough tough combination. You know, with Taylor, I always try to explain that she has severe regulatory uh, sensory problems due to her autism, and that really defines our everyday. It's her regulatory system, her ability to keep her system, you know, regulated and and her sensory system in check. And so that is our driving force. But the cerebral palsy adds the layers of her inability you know, autism means like for her means she can't talk, she's not verbal, but the cerebral palsy prevents her from having any other meaningful forms of communication because her muscles don't work appropriately. She can't get the thoughts from her brain down to her fingertip often to make a choice. It's taken a long road and a lot, lot, lot of therapy for her, whereas, you know, a kid without those motoric challenges would have a much easier time with, you know, using communication devices and things like that. 
And I'm sure that you and Nate have mastered Taylorese. Uh, you know right. what she wants. You know what she needs when she wants it because you can you can read the body language and you know the behaviors. But like most of us parents with a child that, that has those kind of communication issues, we're concerned about what about anybody else? What if we're not here anymore? Who's going to be able to understand what they're trying to communicate and if they can't do it verbally? And that is one of those things that keeps me up at night. Exactly. Exactly. I totally agree. Yeah, we can really go down some dark rabbit holes with the what ifs, can't we? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we should write a travel log on dark rabbit holes. Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that would be very fun. <laughs> Probably would not be a bestseller, I'm sure. Now, I'm I'm willing to bet you would not have been involved with the Family Hope Foundation if you hadn't been Taylor's mom. That is true. Um, yeah. Before I had Taylor, I had zero experience with anyone with special needs or anything to do with it. I, I knew nothing. I always, you know, was raised to be a kind human being, and I feel like I was. But truly, I've learned so much just about just about how to be a decent person yeah. <laughs> in relationship to people with disabilities because. I mean, they're truly just such a minority population in every sense of the word and not just numbers. You know, minority doesn't mean just less amount of people. It means, you know, discriminated against, put in, you know, not not given the rights of others, et cetera. It doesn't matter how many of them there are. There yep. is a lot of discrimination against disability. I know you're no longer involved in the operations there, but you're the best person to summarize what the Family Hope Foundation does because many people might not know. Could you tell us? Yes. Well, thank you. You know, even though I'm not directly with Family Hope Foundation any longer, it is still definitely a big piece of my heart. And I take every opportunity to talk about it and spread the awareness for the organization. So it's an organization that was started in 2009 by a, a small handful of parents, including me, and we decided that, you know, we saw in our own kids how successful therapy made them, but not only how successful therapy made them, but also how it made the entire family thrive when our kids were getting not only the correct therapy that they need, but also the amount of therapy that they need, because some families can't afford to take their child to therapy, you know, if the therapist might recommend twice a week, maybe they can only go twice a month, you know, for financial reasons. So we were able to see what a difference it was making for our entire family when our kid could be more successful, our entire family could be more successful. So and we also then noticed that there was a huge amount of people who could not afford that and, and couldn't make it happen for so many reasons. Um, that was really the catalyst for Family Hope Foundation in the beginning. And the crux of the organization was then and, and is still now providing scholarships for therapy that's not covered by insurance or that's not covered enough by insurance. You know, you might have some coverage, but it's super, super high deductible. So it's still out of reach for your family. So Family Hope Foundation will step in in those circumstances and help families by providing scholarships for for a wide variety, pretty much any type of therapy that is, uh, you know, legit therapy found to be appropriate. And, you know, we, we caution, we look out for our families to make sure that, that they will be going to a reputable organization and that sort of thing. 
I see. I still say we, even though I'm no no longer. Oh, I no think your your spirit's yeah. still involved. You you left a footprint there. Okay, so it's okay Thank to say you. we. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so I did, for people who don't know, I did um, help co-ran the organization with Jane Eppard for 10 years. And, and then I stepped away a few years ago. And Jane now is the executive, paid executive director. So we were able to go from an all-volunteer organization for about eight years. And then we had a part-time assistant. And then we hired Jane as the executive director. So it's really come a long way. It's, it's, it's thriving. And I'm really proud of that. In your first year, how many requests were fulfilled roughly? The very, I remember in the first year, we actually gave out 30 scholarships, and that was in 2010. Since then, just about every year, definitely for the 10 years that I was involved, it was consistent that we were able to fund usually right around 40% of the applications that we received. As the organization grew in its ability to get funders, you know, donors and, and funding in order to give away more money, people heard about us. More, more and more people heard about us, and so we got more and more applications in. And so it, we grew at the, at the same rate with, you know, people finding out about us for help and people finding out about us to give donations. We were consistently able to fund about 40% of the applications because there's just so, so much need out there. And how many did you fulfill last year? Well, I'm not sure how many they did last year because I am a little more removed from that. Um, But I know that we were consistently giving around 100 when I stepped down a few years ago. And we had been giving at that 100 mark for a few years because we just didn't have the staff capacity to manage more than that um, as volunteers to look back on how many lives you all touched and not just the person with the disability, like you said, it's the entire family. Um, that's just awesome. Yeah. That was the best part about the whole thing. Really. It just, that's what lit me up. That's what kept me going was, you know, being able to give out those scholarships to connect with the families, to hear their stories, to get the pictures of the kids that they would send in and to hear how, like specifically how the therapy had impacted their child, what they had learned, how they had developed is really, really a wonderful organization. And I hope they continue to grow. Lara, you lost your sister a little while ago yeah. to a long battle of cancer. And I remember you, you shared that information very graciously on Facebook. And many of us could feel your pain of losing her. Then passing the, the anniversaries, uh, which are really tough when you lose someone that you love very much. It probably was therapeutic for you, but I just want you to know that it really helps other people understand and grow a capacity for compassion also. Can you tell us how did that alter your life path and your purpose? I'm sure that it did. Yeah, so that was really interesting. Um, like you said, my, my sister had battled cancer for about nine years, and so it was no surprise. When she was diagnosed, she actually had stage four colorectal cancer at the time of diagnosis, and, and that has a an extremely low survival rate for the first year. So it was already a miracle that she, you know, lived one year, but she lived nine years and she had multiple surgeries, lots of chemo, et cetera. But she had, um, she had positive energy. She had a positive outlook and she just 
said, you know what? No, that's not going to be me. There's that chance. You know, there's that, I don't know exactly what the percentages were, but we'll say, you know, 1% of people make it. Well, then those people make it, and I can be one of them. You know, and that's just the way that we were raised, and that's the outlook that we grew up with. I truly believe that that is what kept her with us for so long. But it was inevitable that cancer would, and then in the end, you know, get through to all the rest of her body. So while it wasn't a surprise, um, it's, it's not any less devastating or painful, as you said, when you lose someone that you love. But what was really interesting, what I really did not expect, what happened to me was that it cracked wide open this grief inside me that I didn't even know that I had about my daughter, Taylor. And I realized through the process, not immediately, um, that I had just had years and years of grief just piled up and built up inside of me that I didn't recognize as grief for so long. So much of it I, I had identified as stress. Um, you know, these daily, these daily occurrences in our lives that just remind us that we're different, that remind us that our child is different and that we can't do the things that our families can do or they don't live the life that other 20-year-olds live or, you know, just these little things that happen all the time that we don't recognize as grieving situations. Therefore, can't be nurtured in the same way that you would nurture your grief or someone else's grief. And so, therefore, they just get stacked up inside. And that just, yeah, the floodgates opened when I was able to release all that about my sister. And I really, um, I really got quite low. I really got quite depressed and my, my anxiety was high and my depression was low. That's what I say. And, uh, I got into a really bad place. But you got out of that place. Yeah. So that was hard because I, and I was about to say, I'm the type of person, but I truly think that most of us are like this and it's ridiculous that we are, but I think as humans, we just, have such a hard time asking for help or saying that we can't do something or that, you know, that we need help with this. And I don't understand why we're like that. Honestly, I just really don't because it's so silly. We all need each other. We're, that's a part of the human experience is that, is that we're all connected and that we all need to work through, you know, things as a team, really. And so once I finally was able to admit to my coworkers at Family Hope Foundation that I was struggling so badly and I couldn't keep up with the work, and they just immediately, you know, were like, okay, well, here's what we'll do. You know, you take this time, you take six months, we'll do this and this, and give me that, and send me that information, and I'll cover these things, and she'll cover those things. I mean, it was just beautiful, and it was such a relief for me. And so I was able to research with my husband of, you know, what we should do, where I should go. And and so I actually just took a two-week getaway to this um, place in New Mexico that offers grief retreats and um, was able to just start focusing on me and only me for the very first time in my life, (laughs) which is the story of a lot of moms and dads. I really just started to learn what it means to truly take care of myself. And um, how to do that when your whole existence revolves around taking care of someone else, um, you know, it's hard. So I decided to heal and I, and I was able to spend enough time there to really 
really get my stuff together, basically. <laughs> we made sure that I gave myself enough time to truly get better and not try to slap a quick band-aid on it and jump right back into the fire. So I came back with a plan and a renewed sense of myself and a changed mindset on how to take care of myself and what needed to happen in order to do that. And I just created lifestyle changes. And that's what it took. It took complete lifestyle changes in order to really make taking care of myself a daily part of life here at our house. Now, for a lot of people, that probably would, on the face, seem like an awful lot of tough work to go through. But tell us how you feel different on this side of it as opposed to the other side of it. it. It was hard work, and it was something that has to be a commitment for sure. Like I said, it was a lifestyle change, and nothing about making a lifestyle change is easy, no matter what you're making it for. You know, people who want to lose weight or want to have a healthier relationship or whatever you want to do, if you have to truly create lifestyle changes, it's hard work and it takes commitment. But I would never go back in a hundred million years. I have such a level of deep peace in my soul that just couldn't have existed before. It didn't exist before. And I, like I said, I was raised to be a happy, positive outlook kind of a person. I've always been on the side of the glass is half full. And I've always been, um, you know, the cheerleader for others and, and that sort of thing. But that still didn't give me this level of deep peace that I have by being able to turn inward, to truly look at myself and truly take care of myself as a priority. When I make myself a priority every day, it just shifts how life is. You know, it's interesting that people hear that, put yourself first and make yourself a priority, and that seems to many people to be very selfish, right? I'm just saying, on the surface, like, may put yourself first. Well, I'm going to put my kids and my family first, always, you know. Mm-hmm. But how many people drive a car for 100,000 miles without changing the oil or maybe buying new tires or having a tune-up once in a while or fixing an alternator? What happens if you don't do those things, if you don't do proper maintenance for or a car or anything else or for yourself, you end up breaking down, don't you? Which you have some, exactly. You have some great experience with that. I mean, great, not... Wonderful, but you, it was transformational. It was transformational for you. That is a beautiful analogy, one I haven't thought of, but I'm going to, I'm going to steal it and use it from now on. Okay. I didn't copyright it, so it's yours. (laughs) (laughs) It's maintenance. You know, you can be, you can be a better person for your child, for your family, for everybody if you are in a better place yourself. And so you're really reinvesting for the other relationships. Exactly, exactly. I hear all the time, and I felt the same way that it seems selfish. And and I wouldn't necessarily say it out loud if someone would say, what, taking care of yourself is selfish? I would say, well, not, not necessarily selfish, but I would feel like it was selfish. And so that's why I would never do it. I would feel literally so guilty. You know, so many parents feel guilty for spending money on themselves when their kid needs therapy, and they should spend that money on therapy. They feel guilty for you know, taking time out for themselves because they should be working with their kid because they're behind and, you know, well, if I worked with her more for this hour every week, then maybe she could talk by an hour. You know, that just the, those 
layers of guilt and pressure that we put on ourselves for trying to do every single solitary thing in existence for our kids, um, it just, it's killing us. It's not healthy and it's not good for your child either because you have to be at full capacity emotionally and spiritually and mentally in order for them to truly thrive. We're all doing the best we can in the moment, and we can plan for the future being better by taking the kind of steps that you are showing people through your podcast and through your flight club. We'll get into that in just a minute, but, you know, just an observation of myself, and I hate to put people in categories because everybody's doing the best they can, but a disability diagnosis usually brings out the best and and the worst in families at the same time. Some people kind of like circle the wagons, you know, they become hermits and, and they, they're inner focused on their own child. And another group right. will just charge ahead and pretend like nothing's going wrong and just do the best they can. The last group is the ones that innovate and advocate. I see you in that group in particular, because what you did with the Family Hope Foundation and your new initiative here, it's helping other people take care of themselves. So there's some self-care in that because you can feel good about doing it, but it's also a very constructive way to make make life easier for other people. I just have a question to ask you here. Where do you get your energy and inspiration from? Hmm, that's a good question. Is it just in your DNA? Not, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure I have an answer, quite honestly. <laughs> Well, you did mention um, that you and your sister were brought up feeling positive, and yeah, I mean you've you've uh, been through the fire. Um, you know, today, I, I, your question is just invoking a lot of thought in me. So, <laughs> probably going to be thinking about that's this called a good question then <laughs> all weekend. Um, so, I have always been a person, like you said, that has always wanted to bring everybody along with me. You know, it was never, when Taylor was little, it was never just about her and her progress. It was always about advocating for all the kids in her class, trying to make the teachers and the education system see more in them than than I felt that they did. And then with Family Hope Foundation, it was about bringing the community along, you know, really trying to give as many kids as I could a chance to get what we had because I think okay I'm starting to see it now I think the answer to your question is really gratitude it's gratitude that motivates me and it's gratitude that energizes me and now I feel like I'm going to cry <laughs> um, yeah it, that's really the answer it's, I feel so grateful that I have the ability to do what I can do and I have the the skills and the knowledge to make an impact. And not just for my own kid, but for so many others. I want other people to have what we have because I'm just so grateful. I'm grateful for the therapies that we've been able to give to Taylor. I'm grateful for the programs that she's able to participate in. I'm grateful for the community that I've been able to build. And I just want to share that because I just, I truly believe that when we lift each other up, we all can rise. You know, it's not about one person. It's not a competition. We're all connected. We're all here together. When one of us succeeds, then we can all raise up and succeed. And I just, I truly believe that in my 
poor, and I know that to be true. So, so that's what I do. For all the self-care that I have researched, the granddaddy of them all or the grandmother of them all, to be non-sex specific there, is gratitude. And what's peculiar for us, meaning you and I and other special needs parents, we understand this. Our kids are great. They're wonderful people. Um, yeah. what, I, what I prefer that he had other options and other abilities, yes, but I can really appreciate who he is. Now, the strange thing about that is we have the kids that other people are so thankful that they don't have. Right. We have a life that other people look at and say, there but the grace of God go I. And it's it's strange because they don't know. I, I sometimes right. feel like we're in a Harry Potter novel and they're the muggles and we're the wizards, you know? <laughs> I feel the exact same they, way. But we can appreciate right. them. He's a good kid. He's a great kid. Yeah. And love him to pieces, you know? And other people can't understand that. And that's one of these disconnects we carry around with us that uh, is interesting. You know, I, I think of, uh, that just reminds me of, you know, when, when a woman is pregnant, you know, all you ever hear is, well, you know, it doesn't matter as long as it's healthy, you know, as long as it's a healthy baby. I don't care if it's a boy or a girl, as long as right. it's healthy. What if it's not healthy? What if, what if, yeah, what if it has disability? So it just, you know, it just needs to change the framework. I just, I just interviewed my own daughter for my podcast um, yesterday, actually. And my 11-year-old said when I asked her, what do you wish other kids who don't have a sibling with special needs, what do you wish that they knew? And her answer was that she wished that all kids had the opportunity to learn about disabilities. And I think that she's so right. What if we all really understood people with disabilities? How beautiful would that be? That was really amazing what your daughter said. They are a special breed, those siblings. They are um, just beautiful souls. So we're going to take a short break and come back and zero in on, on Changing Your Dreams, your podcast, and the Flight Club. Thanks for tuning in. This is Alex, your producer, here to say hello and to let you know what's coming up next on Unlocky. We're almost at the end of Season 1, and while we have quite the Season 2 already planned, there are some slots that we would like your help to fill. If you have a question, an issue, or just something you'd like us to research, drop us a line at contact at nlawki.com and let us know. Our new listening platform is finally ready for listeners. You can continue to listen to our episodes as a guest, or you can register for a free account and stay in the loop with notifications about new episodes and the occasional special we put out. You can also join as a supporter with two different access tiers, both of which cost less per month than the drink at our well-known coffeehouse chain. We also hope that you'll spend a little time to subscribe to our podcast and share it with someone you know who may benefit from what we've found. We would also like to let you know that Lara Kitt's podcast, Changing Your Dreams, Parenting a Child with Special Needs, will be linked in our show notes, so please stop by and listen to that one next. I'll let you return to the show now. Please have a wonderful listening experience. We're back for part two of our discussion with Lara Kitts on some of her new initiatives, 
her podcast, Changing Your Dreams, Parenting a Child with Special Needs, and The Flight Club. Laura, welcome back. Thank you, Steve. You use the term unique grief in your description of the podcast. Tell us about that type of grief. What makes it unique or different from other types? Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because I have really dug into this topic of grief in the last couple of years. And I, for the first time, realized that we as special needs parents experience what I have seen as three different kinds of grief. And the first one I feel is is quite evident to everyone, which is at the time of diagnosis. And um, like I said, that's pretty obvious to not only the person who's experiencing it as a parent, but also, you know, their community around them, their family and friends, etc. But the second type I noticed as being different because it's much more extreme and acute. And that is when you have a child with medical needs. So that's not all special needs uh, kids have medical needs, but but many do. And, and in those times of, you know, hospitalizations or, you know, extreme seizures or any of those types of situations where you have to face some really hard decisions often, you know, I have a friend whose child had to have brain surgery when she was three years old, um, things like that, right? That's an extreme stress grief um, that I that I feel is very different experienced than than the other types. And the third type is the one that I call the unique grief, the one that um, I, I feel very hidden and very unnoticed most of the time um, and and not really talked about. And that is this ongoing daily almost can be daily grief that kind of never ends. It just recycles and recycles as our children grow and go through different phases and stages of life. And they do these everyday things, like when I um, was changing my daughter's diaper and she was aggressive and I finally got through it and sent her on her way. And I just sat in the bathroom and cried because it was so stressful. And that's what I had felt for years. It was so stressful, so stressful, so frustrating. And it is frustrating and it is stressful. But what I realized in that moment, um, in the last uh, couple of years ago, was that I felt grief. And that was the first time that I had recognized that grief. You know, I was really grieving having not having a typical relationship with my 17-year-old young, young woman of a daughter who, you know, should be spreading her wings and going off to college. And so it's those situations that often are missed as grief because they can be so stressful and we focus on those other emotions. And so that's what I mean when I talk about our unique grief because it's something that we experience as parents of kids with special needs that regular parents just don't experience. I um, totally agree with that. I had a friend a number of years ago who had one adult daughter with Down syndrome. And she was significantly impaired by the Down syndrome to the point where it would be uh, very difficult for her to live without uh, 24-hour supervision. And my friend was in grief that she will never have grandchildren. It's the losses of what you would typically expect as a parent for your children to be able to go through to share that great experience with them about getting married, having kids, buying a home, uh, being independent. All those are losses. <sighs> 
it's a natural thing, but of course, it's not talking about what they are able to do. And if we can focus on that, it changes the picture a little bit. But still, it is a unique grief. You've brought up a really good point. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, this is what happens to us all the time. It's all of a sudden, oh, yeah, yeah, but I'm so grateful for the games that they have. And, and I love my child for who they are and all those kinds of things. Because I see this as a societal problem that people don't understand that gratitude and grief can live side by side. Oh, sure. Just because we're grieving the losses, we're grieving even for ourselves to not have a, you know, not able to be empty nesters, not able to have a retirement and travel and hang out with your spouse and do whatever you want because you're taking care of your 30-some-year-old child. I I just feel like we need to be okay with expressing the grief without that little element of guilt that kicks in for us to have to jump in and say how much we love and appreciate and are grateful for all the things that our child is and can do because those things are a given. We absolutely are grateful and we absolutely love our kids for exactly who they are and that doesn't mean that we can't grieve the losses that are real and then that we're experiencing. And I think what you said earlier with your experience with uh, your daughter after you changed the diaper and you you went through the grief there, you were able to recognize it. And I think when you're able to name it and recognize it, it helps you cope with it and understand it and also frees you up to see some of the beautiful things that they accomplish. And that was the turning point for me when I was able to finally see it. And that took years. You know, I want people to understand that took years of work. That took years of therapy. That took years of practicing mindfulness to be able to finally look in, look in, look in and check in with myself constantly enough to be able to see all those layers of feelings that I was having. And so it was a real turning point when I realized so many of those things in my life were actually grief. I was able to be so much more compassionate with myself after so that. It took a while to get there, but on the other side, it makes life a little bit easier. It does. It brings a lot more peace. The next question is, how did you decide to host a podcast? Now, you had mentioned earlier that you never even listened to podcasts before, but all of a sudden this became a really right. unique medium. Yeah, isn't that funny? I really had never listened to podcasts. I mean, I... I sort of knew what they were, but not really. Um, And it wasn't just not on my radar at all. But what happened was last fall, I um, had, you know, I had this idea of wanting to help parents in some way. I wanted to help parents um, understand what I had come to realize and about this element of grief and, and how to recognize it. And like you just said a minute ago, you know, if you can see it, then you can feel it and move through it and, and address it. But if you don't see it, it just builds and builds and builds. So I just wanted to figure out how I can serve, how I can help people, how I can spread this message. And, and I, you know, started brainstorming and creating programming. And I joined this course um, from a woman named Kathy Heller, who, um, whose mission is really to help entrepreneurs and people start businesses um, and she, so I ran, I went in the three month class that she was running and she has a podcast, which is extremely successful. And, um, it's called don't keep your day job. Um, again, for helping people to get out of the rut and start their own businesses. She, part of our homework one time, one week was to, you know, do these steps, you know, one, two, three, et cetera, on how to start a podcast. She wanted everybody to try it. 
I did the homework, really, was it. You know, she gives prizes for homework, so I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I did the homework, and I found that I just loved it. I just really love it. It's exciting, and um, it makes me happy, and, and I love connecting with other parents, and it's just another great way to spread the message. And that's how I started with my podcast, which is called Changing Your Dreams, Parenting a Child with Special Needs. It's really cool, a really cool story. It's a great medium, and I'm glad you chose it because your message is very important. Thank you. What do you hope to achieve with changing your dreams? The goal for me with my podcast is to, like I said, help parents identify their their grief, right? And and that's through shared stories um, from interviewing other parents. I'm also currently running a sibling series, um, which I plan to do twice a year, where I interview siblings of all ages that grew up with a, a sister or brother with special needs and get their perspective because it's so interesting and so unique with the lives that they live. But, you know, really to help a parent to, you know, see and to grow. And then secondly, I really want to reach people who don't have a child with special needs. I really want the broader community to listen in because they want to learn and they want to grow and they want to know how they can better support the parents that they know in their lives who do have a child with special needs. So I know that I have, you know, some therapists, uh, occupational therapists, physical therapists, there are things like that who work with kids and families who are listening. I have, um, you know, people who are family members of people who have a kid with special needs who are listening. And that is exciting to me because that's really what I want. I really want the broader community to better understand us so we don't feel so alone all the time, um, so that we feel like we have better support systems. That's another excellent goal. Yeah, thank you. You know, you're so right. I Before I had my daughter, I had zero experience with, you know, people with disabilities. Yeah, so that's really my goal is just to help people to, you know, just to see that they're human. You know, I just actually interviewed my own kids for my podcast for the sibling series. And my 15-year-old, I, I asked her, you know, what do you wish people knew who don't have a child with special needs or, or your friends at school? What do you wish they knew? She said, I wish they knew that they were just human beings, that they just are people. Right. And and when you gave that example of before, if we saw someone in a wheelchair, what did we see? We saw the wheelchair. Saw someone, like you said, that, oh, they're different than me. And I want people to get a lot better at seeing a human being. Most of us don't want to have the task of educating the population about our lives uh, because we have enough challenges in our lives. But it's important because they will never know unless those people who live that life share some of that experience with them why it's brilliant for you to share this with the podcast. Liam has three older siblings, and none of them spent as much time with Liam because they were pretty much on their way out of the house or out of the house. Uh, And he has one younger sibling, Alex. Alex has spent a lot of time growing up. Sometimes he felt in Liam's shadow. But as a result of having a brother with special needs, I'd say that Alex is one of the more empathic individuals I've ever met. He has a great deal of understanding and empathy for other folks. Life isn't always a bowl of cherries, yes. but they come out of it as better human beings. Oh my gosh, yes. I, I for sure, I completely agree. It's just a gift that that they are given um to develop such a higher on such a higher plane, you know, than their peers for that 
empathy and that compassion and that ability to see people for who they are as humans. Like you said, of all types and kinds of races and minorities, etc. So it's a beautiful gift. Yes, these siblings are amazing. The next question I had was, you use the term beautiful life on your podcast. And of course, beauty, they say, is in the eye of the beholder. And we all might see beautiful beautiful life as, as being something different. What is a beautiful life to you? And what does that beautiful life include? And are some people or things that you feel the need to exclude in order to live that beautiful life? Hmm, that's a good question. That's an interesting question. Thank you for asking. For me, I think that what that means the way I qualify that is that I feel peace. It's really this level of peace in my heart that transcends kind of everything else and allows me to see the beauty in everything and everyone. As far as exclusion, I don't feel like it really excludes anything, but it does include boundaries for sure. You mentioned excluding people and, and things. And so that triggers the thought of, you know, there are definitely boundaries that we have to set, and that's extremely important. And those usually come on pretty early in the game, knowing who is the right person to keep in your life and who is the one that maybe shouldn't you shouldn't spend time with. Um, those toxic relationships, those toxic people who don't contribute to your overall well-being, you need to set boundaries around, the, around those people. And so, you know, in a way that's exclusionary, but I feel like when you're at the place where you have this level of peace, that you're able to open up even to those people in a way that is just sending them love and hoping really truly for the best for them and hope that they find peace in their hearts as well, but you don't necessarily have to still hang out with them. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's just definitely a self-preservation type uh, strategy. But I think what's beautiful about that, and I give you a great credit for being that gracious, is that it might be your influence that changes them. You're definitely a positive person. So it's very gracious of you to say, you'll never lock the door, but you might close it part way. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, I think that ebbs and flows throughout your life, depending on where you are. I mean, I'm, you know, I certainly have work to do and and there are times when that door definitely needs to be closed. And if you need to shut the deadbolt for a yeah. couple of months or a couple of years, that's totally okay, too. Because like you said, that self-preservation, sometimes when we're at the height of stress and anxiety with our kids, with extreme situations or phases in their lives, you know, particularly for me and my daughter, it was when she was really in the height of puberty. It was rough. So closing those doors, locking the windows, that's okay. If you've got to circle in and just take care of you and your family for a little while, that's okay. But seasons change and time goes on and when things relax and you find, you know, a way to find more peace again in your life because we kind of ride this roller coaster, you know, then maybe you open the windows and let the fresh air in and unlock the deadbolt and see what happens. Good examples right there, I think. Unlock the deadbolt once in a while. Mm -hmm. Now, a little bit about the flight club as opposed to the fight club. My my eyes see that and I see the word fight. I don't know what that says about me, but the flight club. Tell us about the flight club. 
and what you hope to accomplish with that, how it works, what the benefits are of someone joining. Sure. So Fight Club is an old movie with Brad Pitt, for those who aren't familiar. And and my Flight Club is sort of a, a little play on that with the name, because in the movie they say the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. It's a secret thing that they have going on. But in Flight Club, the first rule is that you do talk about Flight Club. So Flight Club is really a metaphor on Butterfly in that it's a membership program, so a monthly membership where parents of kids with special needs can join. And each month we focus on a different self-care topic, for example, meditation. And so we'll have a guest expert come in the first week of the month, teach us all about that self-care topic and how we can integrate it into our lives. And in the second week, I have an implementation session where I really break it down because, let's face it, we can't just do all these things. You know, we can't sit down for a half-hour meditation necessarily, especially straight out of the gate if you've never meditated, number one. But number two, we often don't have the time for that sort of thing in our lives, and that's why self-care gets pushed to the bottom of the list or doesn't even make the list at all a lot of times. And so what I do in Fight Club is I really teach how to do bite-sized pieces of these self-care things, how to truly integrate them into our super busy lives so that they really work for us and that we can make it accessible on a daily basis. So we implement that in the second week and we everybody creates their plan for what they're going to try to do in the month to explore this, you know, this meditation or whatever the topic is. And so the rest of the month we spend supporting and having accountability and implementing the, the item and, and see how it sticks for us because not everything is for everyone. So like I said, it's the metaphor of a butterfly, which is, you know, first we all start off as caterpillars. We're just lumping around life and, and things are pretty good. We, you know, we're eating a lot of leaves, but we're caterpillars, right? If we go inside the chrysalis and do this hard work of really creating these lifestyle changes and deciding to put ourselves first and make ourselves a priority and really take care of ourselves so that we can be better equipped to take care of others, um, that's hard and it's uncomfortable in its work. And so that's in the chrysalis. But then when you get to come out of the chrysalis on the other side, like I've described before, it's this element of peace. That's when you feel like you're a butterfly and get to just soar around and be beautiful and, and see the beauty of life. So that is Flight Club. Well, that sounds like a very lovely goal. And this reminds me a bit about when we were talking in the first part of this interview about Family Hope Foundation and how when a child with a disability gets the proper therapy, it changes the different relational aspects of everybody in the family. I know you haven't been doing this for long yet. Have you been able to witness any change that is transferred from the people participating in the flight club and what's going on in their family? Well, I can certainly, you know, speak for myself in in the work that I've been doing because I've been doing this for myself for two to three years now. And like you said, I've just started a flight club um, in the last few months, so it's not quite as long for other people. But for myself, it all changes. The whole family shifts when anything that's impacting one member of the family, this is called the family system theory, anything that affects one member of the family affects all the members of the family. You know, just take a really big, vivid example of spousal abuse, right? If, if, if the wife is being abused by her husband, that certainly affects the kids, even if they're not being hit. Right? And so that's an extreme example to make it real for people to understand. But the same is true at various levels of anything. And so if one member of the family is just super anxious and 
and really struggling and, and depressed and whatever those moods, those feelings, those emotions, that energy transfers to everybody. We're all energetic beings. Definitely when someone who has been feeling like that then transcends and feels, you know, transitions into this much more peaceful place of joy and happiness, that's going to definitely affect everyone for sure and easily. There are times when I have a great deal of, of sense of peace and a sense of perspective on life. When I have done that and I interact with my son, he is far more cooperative. Now, I do know that they read our body language, and even if we're not talking, we're able as human beings to understand at some level what's going on with someone's level of energy or whether it's a positive or negative energy. And uh, when I am more peaceful, I find that he is far more peaceful too. Conversely, when I know Absolutely. that I'm really stressed out, he has a bad day. Not because I created a bad day for him, but I, I broadcasted that to him and he picked it up. I was a transmitter and he was a receiver. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's, yeah, and that actually reminds me of Family Hope Foundation. That was the premise with which we marketed our sensory-friendly movies. Um, you know, we had, and they still do have a partnership with Celebration Cinema in West and Mid-Michigan. Having those movies where the sound is, the volume is turned down, the lights are kept up a little bit. And everybody is free to be who they are and wiggle around, make noises, holler, run up and down the stairs, whatever your kid is going to do. And nobody cares. <laughs> the reason that that is so successful. And you would think that this, this invokes an image of chaos in a theater in your head, right? Yeah. But it's not. Oh, my gosh. It's like a regular movie. And there might be more noises or, you know, my child usually hollers and sometimes we step out. But, um, yeah. you know, there's a little bit of that. But truly, it is almost just like a movie experience of people watching and enjoying a movie. And the reason is because all that stress and anxiety and worry on the parents about taking their kid out in public and not just in public, but to a place where there are a lot of social norms involved in a theater. You know, you have to be quiet. You have to act a certain way. You have to follow these social norms in a movie theater, right? So that kind of pressure on parents is, it makes them so anxious and that energy feeds to the kids and then all chaos breaks loose. But in the Family Hope Foundation movies, that's not the case because all that stress and anxiety and pressure is taken off of the parents. And so they can actually relax with their child in public, which is not easy for a lot of us. And the kids feed on that and they can relax and enjoy it. And so it's a beautiful experience. And that's the prime example of when you can relax and feel good and you take care of yourself on a daily basis at home in your everyday interactions with your child, they will feed on that energy. Tell us how to access, first of all, changing your dreams, parenting a child with special needs, the podcast, and then how does one find the flight club and join it? Hello, thanks for asking. So my podcast can be found on just about any platform, wherever you listen to your podcast, just search for changing your dreams, parenting a child with special needs, and it'll pop right up. Um, I've heard that you can also search my name, but I haven't tried that Um because uh, I would just, you know, tell people to look up the podcast name. Then additionally, I have a website, which is my name, larakits.com, L-A-R-A-K-I-T-T-S.com. And that's where you can find information about Flight Club and other programs that I have. And also a, a link to the podcast there, too. That's about as easy as you can get. 
Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to spend some time with you, Lara. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for having me, really. It was a delight to talk about all these things today. Hi, this is Carrie. I am the head barista at the Unlocky Chat Cafe. Welcome. And today we had a wonderful interview and Steve is here to help us kind of chat a little bit about some of the things that we learned. Yes, uh, we talked with Lara Kitts and she's an old friend of mine and, and she's got some exciting new ventures going, which I think should be very beneficial to families with disabilities. Oh yeah, there was a lot of excellent tips in her interview. I'm I'm really excited that this uh, help and assistance is out there for parents. Absolutely. Much needed, much needed. Um, I certainly had to agree with her when she said, for some reason, it's hard to ask for help. It's hard for people in general to ask for help because we're we believe in self-reliance, right? And it's a weakness to ask for someone else to help you, which is stupid. True. You know, it's also sometimes the help that you get isn't always helpful. But And then there's the guilt, 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 guilt. I remember years ago, Hallmark used to have a, a slogan they had that they give the gift that keeps on giving. Heard at that time that guilt is the same thing as the gift that keeps on giving. It's just you <laughs> No matter what you do as a parent, you feel some sense of guilt that you could have done more, you could have protected your child, because we're always second-guessing what we could have done, which, again, it's a human nature thing, but it's worse when you're a parent. Right, right. And it's especially bad if it's a special needs parent. I mean, that's a constant cycle, because you're, and you're constantly looking at you know, a new therapy and, you know, oh, should I do that? Or should I do this? Or you know, where should I devote to? And I got this much 24 hours in a day and vicious, yeah. vicious, vicious cycle. Talking about lifestyle changes. Now you're talking about doing some self-care things. And I really, really liked how Lara put it in that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say out loud that I would feel selfish doing it. As I'm doing it, I feel guilty for doing it. We don't need outside uh, indictments in regard to selfishness. It's an internal thing. Yes, and that is that is really hard. Going through that and denying yourself because you think it's selfish, then you're not really presenting a really healthy person as a caregiver. And uh, to our neurotypical children and to our special needs child, too, if you're not taking care of yourself, you're sending them a lousy message about what they should do as they grow up. Right. Doing this self-care thing mm -hmm. isn't selfish. It's allowing me to be the healthiest person that I can be for the person I need to take care of, assist with, be, to be a caregiver for. I'm not a very healthy person. I can't do a very good job. If I'm worn out, I can't have the patience that I'm going to need. You know, that's what I'm saying. And it's also a really great model because I remember being very angry at my mother as I was going through this as being a young adult saying, she did not tell me, she did not show me how to ask for help. I don't know how to do that. I wish I had. But I remember you also saying at the time that you didn't know 
who to ask for help because there's nobody else in your family that had any experience working with a, a child that had disabilities. Right. So even though your mom was there to offer advice, she didn't have any experience in that particular area. Right. Anyway, the other thing that I picked up from this was that you can be okay with grief. Yes, and you can have grief and gratitude at the same time. Oh, yeah. But you don't have to have one in order to have the other. I, my mother's heart feels so sad. I have such sadness, grief, that he won't know the beauty of a kiss from a lover. He won't, And that breaks my heart. But I, And I don't have to say, but he's got a great smile. I mean, I don't have to balance this. You know, it's okay to just say, my mother's heart grieves that he will never, to my knowledge, know a lover's kiss. And it's okay to just be there. What else did you have? I also have that I find it very curious that siblings of people with disabilities typically seem to have an increase in empathy for all. And, you know, there's probably plenty of reasons for that, but I'm thinking that they get to see maybe mom and dad in more stressful situations, and they're kind of like peeking behind the scenes of a play. They know what's going on backstage, and they're seeing pain in the faces of other people that they love. So they're bound to have uh, an opportunity, at least, to develop a greater sense of empathy about individuals and the complexity of human beings. My other points that I consider highlights mm -hmm. uh, have to do with her uh, flight program. Again, she's very cognizant of the fact that as parents <laughs> of special needs kids, we don't have a whole lot of time. And if we're going to learn these lifestyle changes, we need to have them in bite-sized pieces. And I really applaud her for for making sure she stays within those parameters. And, and by doing that, she is then allowing these members to be able to achieve their goals along with accountability, but it's also keeping them attainable. Lifestyle changes are very difficult to make. Yes. Uh, we, we fall into patterns. We have no appreciation for the fact that we are such patterned people. And because they're difficult, Breaking it down little things, little bits. I know you, for someone to start meditation for a half an hour is a heck of oh a long gosh. time. Oh my gosh, 15 minutes was forever. Three minutes is a good start if you can do it. If not, one minute and you build on it. And after a while, it becomes kind of addictive where you need to do that. Yes. But it takes a long time. It's, it's, it's a process. And for those who get discouraged about that, Everything's got to start sometime. Why not today? The little bits are easier. And if you fall off the wagon, you can get back on the wagon. Not a problem. Start over again. Indeed, indeed. And, you know, the, and, and having the accountabilities, it's, it's nice because then you see that, you know, hey, I'm not the only one struggling. You know, you right. hear that this was hard. <laughs> and, you know, my, my, my phrase that I thought was just absolutely phenomenal when you're first starting to meditate was monkey brain. Because the brain is popping all over the place and doing things. And you're like, I don't think this is how this is supposed to be. It's like, that's okay. 
That's just monkey brain. Just keep powering through it. Just, you know, keep trying to quiet it and just say, oh, yep, you went over there, but I'm going to stay back here. I'm not going to go down that road. We're just going to come back here and we're going to refocus on breathing in. And And I thought that is such a great forgiveness to say, it's okay. I didn't do really great yesterday. You can't fail at it. And if you, if something doesn't work out, okay, then do a little bit later. I'm really, really happy that she is focusing on something that is such a great need. There's a lot of things important in life, but the number one important thing is your own health, your mental health, and your mind, spirit, body, mind, spirit, body. And you can't ignore this part of it. It's very, very important. I'm I'm glad that she's doing this. I'm so happy. We kind of touch on that with uh, navigating life as we know it, but that's not the major focus. So she can dig a little bit deeper and walk that path with people. And I think that is just a beautiful thing. An excellent resource, an excellent resource. Anyway, let's uh, give some credit where it might be due. Absolutely. We'd also like to take this time right now to thank all of those who make this podcast possible. Alex is our producer. Holly Johnson designed and manages our website and Facebook pages. And Daniela Munoz is our intern. Danny collects our data. She does research and she manages some post-production contacts with our guests. Navigating Life as We Know It is a production of Envision Media Group, LLC. Steve Johnson is your host. And I am your co-host, Carrie Johnson. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you.